Hello and welcome to the We're All Stories podcast. Stories are who we are and what we leave behind after we go. I hope you enjoy this one I put together for you today. There are many stories in this world from many different cultures. Few cultures have captured the imagination of the human race like that of the Norse. These stories have hit a resurgence lately in popular culture thanks to Marvel's Thor and video games like the most recent God of War, which I've slowly been working on, and Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I've been playing pretty much non-stop the past few weeks, as well as shows like Netflix's The Last Kingdom. Though one of the stories which has captured the imagination of our generation the most are the adventures of Ragnar Lothbrok as told in the popular show Vikings. This is the true tale of Ragnar, at least according to the Icelandic sagas. His life and loves, his children, and what the heck does Lothbrok mean anyway? I became formally introduced to the Nordic people in college when, on a whim, I took a class on the Icelandic sagas as an elective. After that, I was hooked, taking classes in Old Norse Icelandic and on Nordic mythology. I then made Celtic and Norse cultures the focus of my anthropological studies. But enough about me. Okay, first off. Who were the Scandinavians? We see evidence of early Scandinavians showing up in the Stone Age in the Scandinavian Peninsula comprised of Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Archaeology suggests that this culture has remained unbroken in this area since then at least. Some of these people break off and leave Scandinavia, losing their Scandinavian identity. These migrants include the Burgundians, Lombards, and the Goths. In those days, they spoke a language that would come to be known as Proto-Germanic. This language was split apart to become West, East, and North Germanic. West Germanic would split apart to become Netherlandic German and Anglo-Frisian, further splitting up to become Modern Netherlandic and German, our English, and Frisian, respectively. Frisian, by the way, is the language spoken by the Frisians. What a shock. Of the coastal Netherlands and Northern Germany. East Germanic becomes Gothic, the language of the Goths. The Germanic people that would sack Rome in 410, not the kids all in black with the makeup and stuff who would like to read you their morbid poetry. For the sake of this episode, we are focusing on Northern Germanic, which split into East and West Scandinavian to become our modern Danish and Swedish, as well as Icelandic, Faroese, and Norwegian, respectively. Sometime around 400 AD, we see the early evidence of a written language appearing in the form of runes. As I mentioned before, up to this point, the Scandinavians are pretty sedentary. Somewhere around 700, we see them stepping out on holiday, meeting new and exciting people, killing them, and taking their stuff. But they always return home. At this time, there was more of a tribal structure. As time went on, some people came to amass more wealth than others, and kings began to emerge. 
With this unequal distribution of wealth, as is so often seen around the world, changing economics leads to leisure activities. Among these activities that emerge is the art of storytelling. The mythology of the people begins to be set in rough poetry. These stories answer the questions of the people, like how the earth was created, the roles and activities of the gods and goddesses, and where do we go when we die. According to the sagas, around 872, Haraldr in Farhagri, commonly translated now as Harald Fairhair, unites the people of Scandinavia into one country, Norway, with himself as king. Perhaps it was because some were unable to put aside feuds with other clans that they would now have to call brothers, or a loss of livelihood or tribal identity, and an ever-increasing lack of arable land. When one people inhabits the same area for a thousand years or so, conditions can get a little cramped due to population growth over time. This was a problem when there weren't many supermarkets around, so people had to farm their own lands to survive. Additionally, when the owner of the farm dies, the farm would be left to his descendants, often divided up between siblings. As time goes on, the individual area owned by any one descendant is a fraction of what it once was. If this goes on long enough, you'd be lucky to have a scrap of land large enough to stand up in. It is likely a combination of all of these things and more, but we see a mass exodus of people from Scandinavia as many of the best and brightest and most notable move away from home to establish themselves elsewhere, giving birth to the Nordic lands. This exodus brought about the settlement of Iceland. This accounts for the dispersal of Nordic people into other lands outside of Scandinavia. Technically, only those that stayed could truly be called Scandinavian. That is why Nordic territories like Iceland were not included in our original definition up at the top. Under the rule of Fairhair, the stories begin to become more formalized, becoming known as Adaic verse. Harold reigns until circa 930 when he passes on his crown to Eriker Herodson, popularly called Eriker Blothox, or in English, Eric Bloodaxe. Eriker does not sit on the throne long, though, for he is succeeded by his brother, Hauken Athelsteinfostri, or Hauken Gothi. Hakon the Good. He begins the conversion of the Nordic peoples to Christianity. Because of this, Adaic verse in large part falls to the wayside. In Iceland, conversion happens a little differently. Iceland is a free state. Viewed from the outside, its government functions similarly to a democracy. They are considered the oldest still operating parliament. In truth, the Icelanders had a decentralized government with no overseeing executive body. Iceland was divided into four regions, which were further broken up into three districts, or things. Decisions were made and disputes managed by the Gothar at the Thing. There was a great gathering, or All Thing, where the individual things would come together every summer at Thing Cutler for the All Thing. The traditional center of this was the Lugberg, or La Rock. This was presided over by the Lugsugamothar, or Law Speaker. This position had no deciding power, rather it was their job to memorize the law and weigh in on matters and in general keep things running smoothly. 
Weighty matters that concerned everybody or the rare dispute that could not be cited locally were addressed here. This was a public event and all were invited. It had a festival air. According to tradition, in the year 1000 the matter of Christianity was brought up and it was democratically decided the country would convert. On reaching a decision, the Lugsagamathar knocked his staff against the Lugberg, which split in half, marking the end of the old ways. Due in large part to this peaceful conversion, things were a lot less strict than was seen elsewhere. The old ways could still be followed as long as it was recognized that the country as a whole was Christian. The two ways of life were not seen as necessarily mutually exclusive. One example of this can be seen in a mold used by a silversmith. One side was a cross, while the other side of that same mold had Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. This atmosphere of acceptance allowed the stories of the people to not only persist, but to flourish. Storytelling becomes an art with the storytellers, or scouts, developing a complicated system of verse, where daily things were referred to by their poetic allusions based on their commonly understood mythology. For example, a ship might be poetically referred to as a steed of the sea, or further as Aegir's steed. Aegir being a sea giant considered a god of the sea. So, a horse you would ride over Aegir's territory would be a ship. These illusions are called kennings. To keep things interesting, any given object could have countless kennings that were commonly understood by the people. Some of these were put together and explained in the younger or Prosetta of Snorri Sturluson around 1200. Though some of these kennings were explained, this was far from all of them, and even in this work, which has been theorized to be a primer to help outsiders understand the stories, Snorri relied on his audience having some working knowledge, so some kennings that modern researchers can't figure out now were likely taken to be so commonplace at the time that Snorri felt they required no explanation. In many cases, Snorri also references older works that no longer exist to us today. Much knowledge of the Nordic mythology has been lost to us. The complex web of story we see today is likely a fraction of the whole, a window through which we can see perhaps into one room of the greater house. In fact, we don't even know what we know about Nordic mythology. The myths that we have now weren't recorded until sometime after conversion to Christianity, and likely many of the stories were altered to make them more palatable to a Christian audience. An example of this is the story of Ragnarok, the Twilight of the Gods. It has been theorized that this story was created, or at least altered to resemble, passages from Revelation. The popular theory is that it was written after hearing a fire and brimstone sermon. It is in Iceland that we see the rise of the saga. Sagas are unique in that they are part legendary, part historical accounts. They were often commissioned to honor one particular family or another, and would focus on the heroic deeds of members of that family. This explains why part of the formula of the sagas includes a genealogy as its introduction. Poetic license was likely taken to make these deeds grander, and smoothly melded the legendary and historical. 
These stories were transmitted orally for probably hundreds of years in some cases before being put down to paper. Icelanders became renowned internationally as wordsmiths and storytellers. Stories can be understood to be a national export, hence the need for a book like Snorri's to help outsiders understand the popular kennings from these stories. It is largely from the accounts of these sagas that our modern understanding of the Nordic people comes from. As these sagas usually honored one family or another, events tend to be viewed from a certain perspective. It would also hold the flavor of the individual skald who created it, as well as the character of the subsequent retellers. So, the same events can appear in multiple sagas, but may be drastically different. Say an event involves a conflict between persons from two different families. Both of these could end up with a saga portraying their given perspective and be told in such a way as to make themselves and or their family look good. This would likely involve their given protagonist being in the right in the conflict and may end with themselves coming out ahead. So the same event could be seen from two different perspectives with potentially two different motivations and two different results. Throw in hundreds of years of telling and retelling, and this can create two very different accounts, leading to contradictions and discrepancies. This has led some scholars to dismiss them as historical material entirely. After all, how can you know which version is the right version, or whether either one is a reliable account at all? In addition to all this, to further muddy the waters, many of the sagas have mythic and legendary elements in them. For example, a given saga may be focused on a particular historic battle, but the participants are made out as legendary heroes armed with magical weapons and armor and may involve magic, mythical creatures, or even the gods themselves. So you can see where this can make things difficult for modern researchers. All of this has led many to categorize them as either-or, either their legends or their historical accounts. But this dichotomy is not the correct way to view things. They are both legendary and historical and should be read and enjoyed as such. Just as Iceland was both pagan and Christian, they seem to have always been something in between. Now that you understand a little about sagas and how they work, let's look at the story of Ragnar Lothbrok. The story of Ragnar is told in a few different sagas, each telling it slightly differently, though some aspects may appear identical across different versions. For example, portions of two versions where a character is speaking may use exactly the same quote. Whether this was actually said by the person, or one is quoting the other, or whether both are retellings of an older account will likely never be known. This has led some to wonder whether Ragnar and his sons actually ever existed at all, or whether all of them were mere contrivances, characters in a story. All of this is to say that these are not necessarily hard facts as we see them today. As a result, I do not endeavor nor presume to present a factual historical narrative of events. Rather, I try to portray it as the rich story that it is. 
Whenever possible and applicable, I do point out differences between the versions, as I have done in previous episodes. We'll be right back after these messages. Ever listen to a podcast and thought, hey, I bet I could do that, but then wonder how to go about it? I know I did. But then I found Buzzsprout.com. Buzzsprout gave me all the tools I needed to succeed and sound great. By starting a free account, I was able to publish my work and they even got me connected to all the major podcast directories. By upgrading to a paid account, I was able to keep more content on there and I got access to their aptly named Magic Mastering Tool. Your material is run automatically through this program, which balances the individual segments, so it all sounds the same throughout and flows smooth. This is a must if you're recording in segments. If you use the link in the description, you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card for signing up for a paid membership. If you're passionate about something, get out there, share it, and let Buzzsprout do the rest. Make sure to check out our Patreon page. When you donate to this podcast, not only are you showing your support, but you are also getting access to special notes, polls to help pick future episodes and merch, as well as recipes to go along with the episodes. So check it out. And now, when you pledge $25 a month, we will send you your very own Raven's Wing mug. Follow the link in the show notes to take a look. And now, back to the show. Ragnar is the son of Sigurdr Hringer, the son of Ronver, king of Denmark and nephew to Haraldr Hildeton, that is, Harald Wartooth. Ronver was the son of Rauthbarthr, king of Garthriki, the Old Norse name for Rus. Rus was an Eastern European territory, which, well ruled by Nordic kings, it also contained Slavic, Baltic, and Finnic tribes. Over time, Rus becomes more Slavic, and Old East Slavic would become the common tongue, replacing Old Norse. This was the building block on which our modern Eastern Europe is built. Vestiges of Rus can still be seen in Ruskaya Zimlaya, the land of the Rus, and Belaya Rus, White Rus. These would later be truncated to Russia and Belarus, respectively. Ranver was the grandson to Ivar in Vithvathmi, king of Sweden and half-brother to Haraldr Wartooth. Ragnar's mother was the Norwegian princess Alfhildr, who was by tradition of the Alfer, or the elves. The Alfer seemed to be part myth, part historic people. They are apparently known for their size, strength, and beauty. Ragnar is supposed to take after his mother's people, being bigger, stronger, and better looking than all the other men. Ragnar himself succeeds his father as king of Denmark, or Sweden, or by some accounts, both. In Gjotland, there was a Jarl named Herother. He has a daughter named Thora Burgerhjorter. In Old Norse Icelandic, Borg can be translated as a dome-shaped hill, or a fortress, or a walled town or city. Well, Hjörtr means heart or stag. Her name is commonly translated to Thora Town Heart, or Thora Fortress Heart. 
Herother loves his daughter and dotes on her immensely. He gives her her own bower, and every day he sends her a different gift. One morning, he presents her with a small snake whose bright scales make it exceedingly beautiful. This snake, it turns out, was a baby lindworm, a mythical two-legged snake creature like a wingless wyvern. Thor is delighted with this gift and makes up a home for it in a box, which she furnishes with a gold coin. Under her care, the snake begins to grow. Soon, the snake outgrows the box and instead coils itself around it. As the serpent grows, the coin Thora had given it multiplies. So now, where once there was a single coin, the serpent is now laying on a small pile of coins. The snake continues to grow. When it is full grown, it has not only outgrown its box, but also the bower entirely, so that it now lays wrapped around the house in a ring, its head on its tail. The coin is now a full hoard of gold on which it lays. Thora is left inside her bower, and no one will go near for fear of the lindworm. It is fed its dinner each day by a servant. The menu? A large ox, which it swallows whole. In addition to its size and ferocity, the worm can also spit venom. And if a hero were able to pierce its scales to damage the creature, its blood is acid and would kill its attacker. At this point, Thora has become an exceptionally beautiful young lady of marriageable age, but no one can pay her suit with a giant linworm in the way. Jarl Herother sees nothing good coming of this, but no one is brave enough to get near the serpent, not to mention kill it. So, Herother has it declared that anyone who can kill the beast can have his daughter for his wife, and the hoard of gold is dowry to boot. Baby Ragnar, at this point, has grown into a teenager. Though young, he is already larger and stronger than most adults. Despite his young age, he is already considered one of the best fighters in the land. He has his own ship and crew of warriors, which he leads. While out raiding, he hears stories of the beautiful Thora and the promise of her father regarding the creature. He acts all nonchalant, but he goes and has special clothes made. These clothes are all hairy and shaggy. He coats them with tar and rolls around in the sand on the beach until they are all covered. They go to the lands of Herother that night to the bower of Thora, there to do battle with the serpent. He dons his new hairy suit and a massive spear most men cannot even pick up, not to mention use. Ragnar removes the pin holding the spearhead to the shaft. He approaches the serpent alone. It spits venom at the young warrior, but he blocks it with his shield. He thrusts in with his heavy spear, wounding the creature. The battle is fierce. This is the first time the snake had been wounded, and he is not happy, snapping and biting at Ragnar and spewing its foul poison at him. Seeing an opening, Ragnar thrusts home with his spear. Some say the thrust goes into the creature's spine, severing it. Some, that he pierced its heart. Either way, that wound was the serpent's death. Ragnar twists the shaft of his spear so that it comes free of the head, which stays lodged in the creature as it begins its death throes. 
Wagner, like a hero in an action movie, just turns and starts to walk away. As he turns, a jet of the worm's hot blood gushes out, blasting him in the back, right between his shoulders. The blood hits the shaggy clothes and drips harmlessly to the ground. As Ragnar is leaving, Thora wakes up and rushes to the window to see what all the commotion was. She sees the shadow of a large man silhouetted there and calls out, asking who he is and why he has come. Ragnar replies with a verse. I've gambled my glorious life, girl of fair complexion. Bought the fish of the land, though fifteen winters old. I have conquered cleaving the coiled heath salmon to the heart, unless its bale should bite, bringing me sudden death. Without another word, he turns and leaves Thora to ponder this. This is a perfect example of a kenning. The lines Fish of the Land and Heath Salmon are both referring to the serpent who, though on land, is covered in scales like a fish. In this poem, though not revealing his identity, he tells her his age and his motivation for coming. With this, he is showing off his intellect, which is greater than that of your average person. Coming up with that poem on the fly, seconds after killing a legendary monster? Thora is left wondering just who this youth is, and if he is even human. He is already huge and not yet full grown. She thinks he seems as big as a monster out of legend. The next morning, Herothr steps out to see the carnage. He notices the spearhead sticking out of the serpent, now gone cold. He has his men lift the spear out, which they do with difficulty, because it is so large and heavy. When Herothr sees the size and weight of it, he feels it could not have been wielded by a normal man. He consults his people and decides to hold a party and invite everyone around. On the invite, he makes it a point to say that he would take it as a personal insult if anyone is not in attendance. So, needless to say, a lot of people RSVP yes. Among them was little Ragnar, 15 years old, yet towering above everyone else. One by one, Herother has the spear presented to those gathered there, asking if it belongs to them. They all say no. Ragnar sits back at the back of the room watching. Finally, the spearhead is brought to him and he claims it, presenting the shaft that fits as proof. From then on, Ragnar Sigurdsson becomes Ragnar Lothbrok. That is, Ragnar Shaggy Breeches. So yeah, far from being some cool glamorous title or even a family name, his name is literally Ragnar Harry Pants because of his linworm-proof clothes. Ragnar and Thora were married, and they have two beautiful children, Eirik and Agnar. They all live happily ever after in Ragnar's kingdom, where he rules with wisdom and goodwill. This lasts for a while, until one day Thora falls sick and suddenly dies. Ragnar is devastated by this. He leaves the kingdom in the hands of his advisors and his sons while he returns to his old life of writing. Everywhere he goes, he is victorious, gaining greater and greater renown. On one of those journeys, he is traveling to Norway to visit some family. 
He pulls into a harbor near a farm called Sprangarith. They berth there overnight, and the next morning he sends his men into the farm to bake their bread. They are greeted by an old lady who is the lady of the house. Her name is Grima. She invites them in, but when they ask for her help to knead the dough to make the work go quicker, she protests, saying she is much too old and decrepit. But she has a young daughter who would be quite able and willing. Her name is Krauka. It means crow. At this moment, Krauka was out bathing, which was forbidden by Mama Grima. More on that later. Anyway, she had heard there were strangers running about, so she decides to freshen up. When the men had heard the girl was a daughter of the old lady, they were expecting a younger version of their hostess, who was the most hideous of women. What they saw made their jaws drop. Far from being ugly or even plain, standing before them was the most beautiful woman they had ever seen. They even remarked on this to Grima, saying they were as unlike as night and day. She was horrible and ugly, well, the daughter was hot. Like, really hot. Grima gives them a big old wink and tells them, Hey, you should have seen me when I was younger. Actually, when she was younger, she looked about how she did now. But ah, uh, the lies we tell. The men are like, sure, whatever. They just keep eyeing Kraka up and down. In fact, after the girl had helped them knead the dough, they kept staring at her, drooling like schoolboys instead of watching the bread. What they took back to the ship, let's just say you could have bagged it and labeled a Kingsford. The crew calls for these men to be punished for bringing back these inedible lumps that they called bread. Ragnar says, now let's hold on a minute. Let's hear your excuse. The men tell him it wasn't their fault. They were trying to do a good job, but she was just so hot. Ragnar is like, whoa, she? And they're like, yeah, she was the most beautiful girl you have ever seen. Which is crazy because her mother is a total hag. On a scale from 1 to 10, this girl was like a solid 20, and her mother was somewhere in the ballpark of negative 100. Ragnar asks, even more beautiful than Thora? I'm sure the men thought long and hard before responding. Maybe not more beautiful, but she isn't any less beautiful. They're pretty equal on the hotness scale. Ragnar says, now this I've gotta see. But... If she is not at least as beautiful as Thora, he's going to hand them over to the crew who were none too happy with their charcoal they were given for dinner. Ragnar sends some men to the farm to fetch the girl so he can see for himself. But he gives this curious little addendum. The men are to tell her to come meet Ragnar unclothed yet covered up. But nobody was to come with her, but she couldn't come alone. And she must be neither hungry nor to have eaten. The men return and tell the girl and her parents this. Grima exclaims about what an idiot this Ragnar was ordering the impossible like that. The guy must not be quite right in the head. Thora, on the other hand, figures that if Ragnar said it, it must be possible, realizing it was a test. 
Ragnar didn't want just a pretty bimbo. He wanted a girl with a mind to match the body. He was looking for a beautiful mind, if you will. The next day, the girl agrees to go meet Ragnar, but first, she talks to dear old ugly dad. She asks him if she could borrow his fishing net and his dog. He confusedly agrees. A little later, the girl comes out in her new couture. She is wrapped in a fishing net and covered by her long, luxurious hair, which reaches the floor. And she has a dog next to her. She eats a special kind of leek, called a wine leek, which was apparently the Old Norse Slimfast. One bite of that could keep you satisfied all day, like Lembus. So it was that she presented herself to Ragnar in all her fishnet finery, being unclothed, yet all covered up. With a companion, yet no person came with her. And she is neither hungry nor fool. He sees her coming and calls out to her, asking who she is. She replies, I don't dare refuse the decree that I must come, nor break with your bidding to be here, Lord Ragnar. No man stands before me, and my skin is not bare. I had my fine following, though I fared here alone. Ragnar is immediately smitten. He could not deny her great beauty nor her agile mind. He asks her to come aboard. She tells him she will do no such thing unless her and her companion are granted safe conduct. He agrees and she comes aboard. Once she is on board, Ragnar reaches out a hand to touch her. The dog springs to the girl's defense and bites Mr. Grabby Hands there. The crew rushes in and beats the dog to death in retaliation. So much for safe conduct. Anyway, Ragnar brings her over to a secluded corner of the ship and the two talk. Wanting to get in her fishnet, Ragnar says, If the fatherland's defender to the fine lady were kind, truly she would take me tenderly in her arms. To which she replies, If you respect safe conduct, Surely you will let me go. Home from here unblemished. Fatherland's Defender and Helmsman are both kennings for a king. Just so you know. Playing hard to get, old Harry Pants was hooked. He asks her to come with him and keep him company during his travels. She says, yeah, no. So, he pulls the... I'm a soldier shipping out tomorrow. Who knows what might happen while I'm gone, so you should sleep with me tonight. She says, yeah, you're going off tomorrow, and who knows what might happen. You might meet another girl while you're out and forget all about me. Then where would I be? But she tells him if he still wants her by the end of his time overseas, then to come back, and then they'd talk. Ragnar has one of Thora's fancy shirts, sewn with gold and silver, brought out, and he tries to give it to her. She says that it wouldn't be fitting for her to wear his dead wife's clothes. She worked on a farm. I mean, seriously? What did he think farmers do all day? She said she couldn't wear fancy clothes as long as she lived with the old people. She tells him she had a great time, but she really must be going. But... If he hadn't changed his mind, she would be seeing him later. Ragnar promises to be back ASAP. True to his word, Ragnar rushes through what he needs to do and comes hurrying back. 
He arrives in the middle of the night and sends his men to fetch her and bring her back. She tells the men that she wouldn't leave until morning and goes back to sleep. She wakes up early to prep. She knocks on the old couple's door and lets herself in. She tells them she knows what they did last summer, or when she was a baby, whichever, and she would be revenged on them. They would spend the rest of their lives miserable. Well, more miserable. Why did she want revenge? What did the old couple do? And would Krauka become the next top fishnet model? Stay tuned for our next episode to find out. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This has been the We're All Stories podcast, a production of Raven's Wing Studios. This story was researched, written, and read by me, David Huncher. The music was written and performed by the supremely talented Brian Berger. If you liked what you heard, give us a like on whichever podcast directory you use. Doing a podcast is a real labor of love. A lot of time and effort goes into making this for you. If you would like to continue hearing new stories every two weeks, please consider supporting us through our Patreon page. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.